Hey guys, a uh, quick boilerplate. Throughout this video, and indeed in most of my real life, when I use the word Nazi, I do not mean people who are in the Nazi party. I do not mean people who supported the Nazi party. I don't mean people who are a member of Germany during the Nazi reign. I mean unrepentant bastards or evil, okay? That's how I use the word Nazi. Yes, I know it's inaccurate when it comes to a technical definition, and I don't care. Any questions? Good. Like Katrine says, Let's leave the drama outside, okay? Now, you notice up there it doesn't say part one. That's because this is the first video, the first two-parter I feel I can go ahead and discuss in one video. Part of that is because the second part I don't have much to say about, except for the things that I'm already going to talk about during the first part. In other words, the whole episode as an aggregate is what I'm going to be talking about, rather than here's what happened in part one and here's what happened in part two. Now, it's weird because this is one of the few episodes that I feel that really works on, and it's unusual because its formula isn't that distinct for most two-parters. Episode 1 does a lot of build-up. It's very slow boil, gets everything nice and established, gets everything, all the pieces in place, and then everything goes completely to hell, and that's part 2, right? But something about the approach of this one feels different because everything that was established in part 1 isn't just character stuff. I mean, there's some of that, but it's uh, there's a whole lot of thematic significance that really comes paying off back in part two, and uh, I don't know, it's just, it feels better to talk about it, for me at least, uh, in a single episode, which brings me to my next point. For those of you not aware of this, uh, which maybe several of you, I don't actually know, the, both of these episodes came out, I, I'm going to refer to it as an episode, the Killing Game one episode from now on, just to make that clear, but Killing Game part one and two came out back to back when this actually went live, originally, back on UPN. I remember that distinctly, actually. A moment I were talking about it, and we were like, oh my gosh, you know. <laughs> and it was weird to have it be concluded literally right immediately. It was basically an experiment. They'd never done that before. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, what about Caretaker? Or what about, you know, any of the other two-parter pilot episodes? Those don't count uh, for the reason that I already mentioned. The only time that's ever been done before is pilot episodes. This was the first two-parter ever in the history of Star Trek that was not a pilot episode that aired back-to-back. -back. And this was rare just for television in general at this point in time. It was the kind of thing you just didn't do. And there's obvious reasons for doing so. It's the same reason why I don't release more episodes a week even though I have produced episodes in advance. It's because, you, you, well, I, I've talked about this before and I don't want to go too much into it. Suffice it to say, it's a risky maneuver. But doing it occasionally for special events, basically uh, miniature uh, uh, what do they call that? Um, there's actually a term for it. Uh, mini mini feature film kind of a thing. I forget the actual term. Forgive me. I'm sure I'm going to get 50 comments explaining what that term actually is. But that's where they're going for this. This is effectively a little miniature movie rather than a standard two-part episode. This will become actually something of a normal normalcy amongst Voyager, and I believe they did this on Enterprise a couple times. I have to say I believe because I didn't watch Enterprise when it came out. I watched the, about half the first season and then put it down until Nemesis, at which point I picked it back up to go through it. So, Anyways, so this is a weird episode too because this episode is, in my opinion, a really good one. I really enjoy this one, and it's weird because it shouldn't be a good episode. It had a lot of problems behind the scenes and a lot of things to overcome, and somehow everyone managed to put forth good effort and good performances into a thing. The, the, the actors did a great job, despite several of them being sick or otherwise tired at this point in time and, and exhausted. The effects teams and the budget, uh, or not the budget, the effects teams, the, uh, the, the, 
makeup, the makeup departments and the people doing the sets, all, all of that, all of the people in charge of basically the overall graphical presentation were literally strained to the point of exhaustion, having just finished working on rather massive projects like Year of Hell, for example. And so now all of a sudden they have to do this big thing. And it's like, oh, God, what are we going to do? And this episode uh, was written by Joe Minoski and Brennan Braga. Now... <laughs> Fun fact, uh, I look at Brandon Braga, and the more I learn about the man, the more respect I actually have for him. And Joe Minoski, he's certainly done some good stuff in the past, and will in the future, despite his unusual perspective on storytelling, as I mentioned back in, uh, what was that, uh, Concerning Flight. But one thing you can say about the two is the two work really well together. Joe Manoski is great at character stuff, Braga is good at inter uh, interesting ideas, and trying out new things. There's a reason Scorpion was so good. By the way, that was Joe Minoski and Brandon Braga as well. So those two got together to write this script, really wanted to do something with it. The, and the funny thing is the original script idea was put forth by Joe Minoski way before this was done. We're talking like a, a year plus. I, I, don't, I didn't get an exact number, but it was clearly before season four even began. Joe Minoski put forth his idea for the basic framework of this episode. Basically... Uh, and, and an idea for Voyager to interact with Nazi Germany was, was the basic framework. And when they, the Herogen entered the thing, Brandon Braga came forward and said, this is it, this is what we can do. We can use them and the holodecks and have them be the Nazi Germans and have us be the resistance. And it came to this whole wonderful idea that it just kind of unfolded as they went through it. It was great. So again, basically an accident that that happened. Now I mentioned the effects people who were exhausted, and yet the effects work in this episode is amazing. Great location work, great uh, set designs, amazing attention to detail, especially with the pub. Granted, a lot of scenes were there, so it deserves the, uh, the attention to detail, but still, they did some great work with the one or two. They basically had like one square, like a single block, which was a confluence of several roads, in order to have all the, uh, the scenes in the town. But the director, uh, Livingston, who I've talked about before and is an awesome director, did some really great stuff with camera angles and lighting in order to make it look like you're actually seeing multiple parts of the town when, in fact, they had this tiny little chunk to work with. And, now this is really funny. Harry Kim was originally written out of this episode. I know what you're thinking, because Harry Kim actually plays a critical part of this episode. But I'm dead serious. Harry Kim originally had nothing to do in this episode. No scenes. Zero. Now let's talk about that for a moment. I'd like to defend Braga here, but I don't know what his thoughts were on the matter. What I do know is Joe Minoski has come forward and said bluntly and brutally... I was bored with Harry Kim, I had no interest in using him as a character, and so I stuck his ass on the bridge. That's almost a direct quote, by the way. You know, I mixed up a couple words, but that's, that's what he said in a direct interview. He's like, nope, don't care about him. I'm not even going to talk about how much that pisses me off. I've talked about the misuse of Harry Kim throughout this franchise so far. So would it surprise you to learn that the Harry Kim scenes in this episode are among my favorite scenes? And I'm not kidding. See, here's what happened. They put forth everything, did everything, struck the sets, you know, got together, edited together, and they were short a lot. They were short several minutes of footage. Now, that's actually really common. I've talked about this before. You know, it's like, oh, we're short, so we got to do something with the extra footage. And usually they just throw in together something that's effectively filler. Sometimes they throw in something to help flesh out characterization or whatnot. Uh, you know, I've talked about this over on TNG. Well, with regards to TNG a few times, where TNG has done some stuff where it's like, here's a character-building moment, or here's a world-building moment, because they needed a few extra uh, minutes of footage, right? Very natural. But they had a unique problem here. 
they'd already struck the sets. They'd already done all the stuff. They could only use the Voyager sets, so they were very limited in what they could use. And there was only one crew member who wasn't involved in the episode. Garrett Wong went on record uh, very quietly to say how pissed he was about this, and I fully agree with him. For his character to just be written out because his writers were bored with his character, that's terrible and frankly negligent. And that is fully on the writers and producers for that. Again, I don't know what Braga's thought is. I couldn't see. I couldn't find anything in any of my magazines or any of my anything with regards to what Braga thought about this. But then a funny thing happened. They did, Braun and Braga and Joe Manoski got together and said, okay, we need to do stuff with Harry. Now, I do know Braga was especially involved in this because Braga's always been one of those people who's wanted to push Harry Kim out of his bubble. He's, he's talked about this before, and this will come back again in uh, Timescape, I believe is the name of the episode, uh, later on in Voyager season. And so... What we have is Harry Kim being this really interesting mix. And I, I wrote a note here down here. Where is it? Here it is. It's a weird balancing act. He is oppressed, beaten, and bruised. So he has to be uh, subservient. And yet at the same time, he is defiant, but without being obstinate. At no point in time does he... I mean, it's too easy to fall into the cliche of, ah, oh, refuse to, 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 to kneel before Zod, you know. It's too easy to do that. He is kneeling before Zod, but while he's kneeling, he's doing something down there. He's being clever. He's using his head. He's being very careful and very interesting in his approach. And the funny thing is, I, I don't have a better way to say this, Harry Kim comes off as a very strong character throughout this episode. He really does. He is pretty much single-handedly responsible for the fact that they managed to defeat the Herosian in this one and, and, and save the day. Literally. And that wasn't even intended. You see how this kind of lays out here, right? The idea of the doctor just doing the Borg thing without it makes more sense if you view the scenes in construct. But anyways, so they actually did something with Harry Kim, finally. And they only did it because they had to. And the funny thing is, both writers, uh, Manoski and, and Braga, both said that they really loved the Harry Kim scenes. So again, this episode, in, like I said, just in just about every way, was lucky. And comes out to be great. I really love this episode. It was a treat to rewatch. Um, I'd also like to give huge uh, credence to the teaser. This is probably the single most interesting teaser I've seen. I'd say maybe the second most interesting teaser I've seen in the history of Star uh, of Voyager, specifically, not all of Star Trek. It, and for those of you who aren't watching these with me, I'll go ahead and lay it out for you really quick. There's someone who, at first, I didn't recognize. I'll freely admit that when I first watched this. Uh, it's Janeway. Spoiler alert. And she's in full Klingon makeup for some reason, full Klingon outfit. And she's fighting a battle, and then a Herosian comes in out of nowhere, defeats her, pulls up a communicator pin, and says, you know, th this is the Alpha to sick bay. Janeway needs medical assistance. And then it cuts to credits. That is an incredibly effective series of, like, question upon question upon question upon question that grabs your interest instantly and, and immediately demands within you what's going on. You know, even if, I, I imagine there are people, I'd, I'd actually curious of this, for those of you who don't like this episode, I imagine amongst those of you who don't, even for, for you, the, the teaser was probably engaging just because of how much it's like, and then you're left hanging. It's like, what? What's going on? And then, of course, they explain. Um, let's uh, go ahead and talk about something I've been alluding to in the past, what, three episodes now? Uh, I'm, this is going to involve a bit of a discussion, so bear with me. One of the things they go out of their way to do, and this is really important, uh, in fact, in my opinion, this episode would have suffered severely if they hadn't done this, 
they go out of their way to explain that the Voyager crew are still themselves. It's still their personality. It's still their mindset. It's still them, the way they think, the way they function. It's just they have uh, memories and personality, not even personality, just memories and, uh, what's the term, uh, perception filters planted down on them, thanks to the holodeck computer. So they're playing a role, but they're playing it as that character would, if that makes any sense. So what we see is Janeway playing the role if Janeway was actually there, you know, if Janeway had lived in that time. It's not, we're not seeing Katrine as as a holocaust character. We're seeing Janeway if she had actually lived in that time. Does that make any sense? It's a key distinction. It really helps flush the episode out because if they had just been the holodeck characters, then for all intents and purposes, making them holodeck characters instead of the crew is meaningless because at that point, they're just holodeck characters and nothing more. There's nothing uh, fleshing them out. There's nothing adding to this. But instead, what we see is the actual characters, you know, Janeway and Tom and Paris, or Tom and Paris, Tom and Bellana and everyone else, acting as they would under those circumstances with those perception filters on. It adds a lot of interesting character moments, really helps flesh the episode out, and basically makes all the interactions actually mean something rather than just be, okay, I'm watching, you know, I'm watching the Herosian Hour, right? So that was a keen and crucial difference. But let's talk about how this relates to Seven. Seven is obstinate, violent, defiant, and refuses to count... She, she literally wants to lash out against the Nazis. She does not like living under their rule, their oppression. Of course she doesn't. She's Seven. She knows exactly what it's like to live under rule and oppression. Twice. Yes, once on the Borg and once on, on Voyager. Now, I know. I've talked before about how Voyager is effectively paradise, and I stand by that statement. But for someone who is unused to anything like social interactions, never mind a command structure, especially at this early stage, I have no doubt that Seven views, at least in a minor way, Voyager as an oppressive atmosphere that she's still trying to acclimate to. Then we have Janeway and Tuvok's interactions with her. And this is where things really get interesting. Both Janeway and Tuvok go out of their way multiple times to express how much they distrust her, how much they don't believe her, how much they're hesitant about her, how much they think that she's actually a collaborator. Now, a bit of perspective here. Th not trusting someone is normal. I mean, you know, if, if I'm standing here and I have to fall, trusting you to catch, you know, I'm like, not the fall, I mean, like, if I'm in a tree and I have to fall and you have to catch me, there are only a few people I'd trust to catch me with that, right? And I'm sure that's true with most people. That's not what I mean. A collaborator in France of the Nazi party, well, that's pretty low. If you actually think someone is like that, you're basically accusing that person of being what some people consider to be the worst thing possible. I'm not even going to bring up the DS9 relations here with the Bajorans and whatnot. The, and, and, and yes, I know it's a more gray situation than you think. But the point is, from the perspective of the resistance, not even normal civil war, just the resistance, the idea that one of their number has actually been trying to have them all killed and executed by the Nazi party, that's a big accusation. That shows not just mistrust. That shows actively that you're antagonistic and hostile towards that person. And Tuvok and Janeway both think that way towards Seven. You see how all these pieces lie and, and fit into this one horrible puzzle. Now, this is only speculating, but there's a lot of subtleties in this episode, so I'm willing to bet that that was done deliberately. Not just for the tension of Janeway almost killing Seven during that one big scene, but also for the fact that this is showing Janeway and Tuvok how they really feel. There's no need to pretend. There's no need to stand on circumstance. Janeway doesn't have her own expectations and her own uh, sense of duty 
to keep her, you know, I, I have to believe in this project of mine, and, and she's the surrogate mother and all that, so I have to give Seven more leniency. And Jane, uh, Tuvok doesn't have to be the, you know, I, well, I'm, I'm an understanding, caring kind of person. It's their actual feelings underneath that coming out, if you follow. Just a theory. But given the fact that that can persists throughout basically the entire episode, especially with regards to the point where there's reaches a scene where Janeway, who is actually Janeway, informs Tuvok, who's currently uh, still under the holodeck program, that Seven is secure. In her opinion, Seven is safe. Tuvok doesn't believe her and makes a point of saying, I will make that determination for myself. Now, I just want to make a side note. I've never cared for the look of the Herosian armor. This is true in Star Trek Online as well. But uh, I think the Herosian actually looked pretty cool in the Nazi uniforms. Shrug. Certainly looked better than uh, Time Crash, or whatever the name of that episode is. Season 4, Enterprise. You know what I'm talking about. So, there's a great scene between the Alpha and the Doctor, where the Alpha says, and I quote here, Their lives are in your hands, Doctor. Don't fail them. That actually makes a lot of sense to me, because I get the impression that he's not actually threatening the Doctor, like some villains would. But he is literally telling the Doctor you are the only reason that these people are still alive and you need to not fail them. You need to do the best you can and they need to constantly be going back into the simulations. Because the impression that we get, even this early on, is that the Alpha is still having trouble maintaining control with his erosion, and that makes sense. We saw in previous episodes where even a erosion ship that contained only two people would actually have arguments and outright, uh, well, not quite fighting, but you, you get the impression that they were willing to fight over their disagreements. That just seems like the Herosian way, and makes sense for a race of hunters, right? So, I get the impression that the Alpha is literally basically telling the Doctor, "You, I need your help keeping these pe people together so I can help keep these people together. Their lives are literally in your hands. I don't have the power to free them. He is trapped by his political situation and his cultural expectations that the Herosian have on him, and I like that. Now... <sighs> And there's, and, and there's a note here. I love the Harry scenes. I really do. Um, another theory while I'm on the subject. It's, again, never stated outright, but I've always believed that basically the Alpha showed up, took Voyager, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And rather than just killing them, he decided he wanted to learn about his prey. Maybe it was just curiosity. Maybe it was because he is something of a, of a progressive thinker. But either way, he started looking into them, and he found this whole holodeck thing, and he found it fascinating. Probably went on there, fought a few battles, and like, well, this is crap. Then probably brought someone on and fought them, and the holodeck was like, well, this is the exact opposite of crap. And it just kind of grew from there. He I, And my point here is I don't think he ever had the intention of what he does in this episode. It's more like he stumbled upon it. And upon doing so, he realized he had the, the means to, to achieve something great. Now, I don't deny at all that the Alpha is a villain, but he's probably one of the most sympathetic villains I've seen in Voyager so far, and it's really easy to see where he's coming from, which brings me to the big point. I've talked before, uh, not too long ago, actually, about the concept of hats and the species of hats. Uh, if you, I believe the episode Hunters is the one where I talked about that. If you want to go rewatch that. Uh, if you didn't catch it the first time is what I mean. So if you want to watch it for the first point. The idea here is, as I made the point back then, I don't think the idea of a species of hats is necessarily a bad thing. I just think it's applied in, in, in as, a, as a lazy crutch in some cases. 
But this episode shows that you can use the the concept of hats in a good way. And and we see at least four distinct perspectives amongst the Herosian throughout this episode. And all of them are different, and all of them have different uh, ideals or, or concepts or approaches to problems, you know, that kind of a thing. And yet all four of these perspectives nevertheless come from people who share the same hat. So it's a nice way to flesh them out and, and diversify them. Now let me, this is going to sound like a weird segue, but bear with me. Based on all the comments of this episode, the fact that the Americans are invading, the long four years, you know, blah, 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 the location in France, it is very likely that this episode's simulation occurs during the late part of 1944. Now, for those of you who have not studied World War II history all that extensively, allow me to simplify and elaborate. The Nazis were losing badly. And I mean badly. It is infamous, and, and some people like to, to joke, even to this day, amongst war historians, about how the Nazi lines were so bad and cr- disintegrating and, and falling apart so rapidly that it was difficult for the Allied forces to take advantage of how much territory the Nazis were losing. It was that bad. Why is that relevant? Well, let's look at the Capitan, the captain. Um, for reference, the actual uh, actor, was the character that he plays, the, the Nazi captain, doesn't actually have a name in the script. That's why I'm going to refer to him as the captain or the Capitan, if you prefer. Um, it's a bit of a shame. The actor actually did a really good job in the role, I think. Great guest stars in this. The Alpha, the Beta, and the Cap- Capitan all did a really good job of their roles. And so did the medical officer, and so did the final guy at the end. So again... Uh, lots of good uh, guest stars in this episode. But I also want to give him praise because it's kind of neat. He was a fan of Star Trek ever since the original series. He was a theatrical actor. And he basically had the opportunity to come in thanks to, you know, a coincidence. And he leapt on it. And then he found out he was playing a Nazi German. And his first reaction was, hmm. <laughs> but then he got to go ahead and do this really hideously horrible, evil speech. And he felt like it was disgustingly terrible to do and a great challenge as, as an actor. So he loved doing it professionally, even though personally he was repulsed by what he was saying. I just felt like mentioning that. The, the man gets some props is what I'm saying. So he, throughout this entire thing, but most especially in the first scene he's in, he is proud, confident, superior. At no point in time does any implication cross him that he is losing. Again, 1944, late. They are losing. They're losing bad. And yet his perspective is such that nothing needs to change. They don't need to change their perspective or their ideology. They don't need to change their culture. And you can probably already see how this ties into the major theme of the episode. Because this entire episode is about the Herosian culture. As, ironically, uh, compared to Nazi Germany at the time. The Beta and... Uh, well, the Beta is, is kind of a weird situation. Because he agrees with the Alpha. But at the same time, kind of doesn't. And is finally convinced to not... It's a weird situation, especially since there's one really telling scene where the Beta looks at the carnage that has happened, and on his face we see shock, as if he wasn't expecting this kind of thing. Remember, the Herosian are not soldiers, not warriors. They're not interested in wars or battles. They're interested in hunts. Now, that's a key distinction because a hunt... Well, I mean, you could argue this one way or another, but in my opinion, a hunt is a lot less horrifying than a battle. Especially a battle during World War II. I mean, my God, man. So I think he was seeing the results of his ideology and the way he was thinking and was shocked at it. And, of course, never had a chance to recover from that because then, you know, he he decided to go after Janeway and was shot. But anyways, point being, we see amongst the Herosian that they are just as trapped in their ideology that Nazi Germany, well, some of the Nazis were. 
at that point in history, confident of their superiority, confident that this is the way things are and the way things should be. Keep in mind, we hear earlier that it is uncommon for the Herosian to even talk to lesser species, to even acknowledging them as the same thing. They have a very caste-based thing uh, for all intents and purposes. There's, you know, there's the Herosian, there's people that are worthy of, of respect of some kind, and then there's prey, which are basically, you know, uh, objects, I think is the best way to consider that. So the idea of the Herosian falling into this cultural stagnation is very logical. And again, a great way to use the species of hats thing to actually do something with the species, to do something with the culture. There's a great line where the Alpha says, you know, any species that does not adapt, that does not change, dies. If you notice, pay attention to the way the scene is shot, that's the scene where it really gets the beta's attention. Up until that point, the beta's like, why are we doing this? And then he's, Alpha says that, and the beta's like, okay. I'm not sure I believe you, but I'm willing to go with you on this for now. Because the Alpha has a point. He really does. The Herosian species are completely culturally stagnant. And inevitably going to die out. It's actually ironic, because at one point in this episode, the Borg are brought up. Uh, actually, twice, technically. And both times, it's mentioned that the Herogen are going to crumble before the Borg, which is absolutely true. The Borg can be delayed, uh, side sidestepped. Um, in some cases, you can evade them or escape them. You, you can't defeat them, because that's not how the Borg work. But the point being, the Herogen are the kind of species who would be incredibly easy pickings for the Borg. Ironically, they would not even be interesting prey for the Borg because they're isolated, alone, have no real information or ability to adapt. or, or Even working as a group amongst the Herosian is so unusual, and that, of course, explains part of the command structure problems that the Alpha's having, because he's only one Alpha. We see at least four ships out there, so there's at least four Alphas, counting him. Possibly even more that we don't even know about. So again, this is pretty unusual. I'm just trying to lay this all out here. I know the episode goes into this, obviously, and I apologize. But for me, this is the most interesting thing about this whole episode. The idea of a member of a species who recognizes how stuck in a rut they are and is trying to do something about it in his own bizarre way. And it sounds crazy. It sounds insane. But the fact that it actually has the chance to work, I mean, I believe the man. I think it could have actually been a good way to move forward the corrosion people to actually become a new people. I'll talk a little bit more of that in a minute. Um, you know what, screw it. I'm going to talk about it now. For those of you who don't know, there are two, to my knowledge, episodes where the Herosian appear after this. Both of them were unplanned. As I mentioned back in Prey or whatever episode it was, the Herosian were always attempted to be part of the new idea of Voyager. We encounter a species for a few episodes, they're the species we encounter, and then they go away. Which makes sense. It was designed specifically to give the impression to the audience that Voyager was having movement home. And a great idea, and I agree with that. So this was intended to be the last Herosian episode. There was no intention to ever bring them back. One, of, one was brought back in Sunkatsi. I'll forgive that one, because that's not really much of a thing. And then they brought the Herosian back, completely different writers, and, and by the way, brought them back in uh, Flesh and Blood, I believe is the name of the two-parter. I hate that two-parter. Now, that's by memory. I haven't rewatched it with analysis mode on, so I'm not actually sure. But I just feel like mentioning that because I know some of you are going to be like, I hate the Herosian, and it's because of that two-parter. I like to separate that mentally because, again, the original intent of the original creator of the Herosian was these four, five, four or five water episodes... And then you'll be over there in the future, which we don't know about yet, because this was the original intent. Just felt like pointing that out. Um, 
I do feel like it is a good usage of seven and the Borg implants, probably because they're not overused at this point in time. The fact that she is the one who ends up getting, you know, because nanites and implants and what that kind of thing makes sense that that's the way she would be the logical choice to be uh, fixed and therefore have her memories back in the in the in the simulation the other reason that makes sense is and i know this is weird but this is only from the perspective of a writer is seven is the person who would have the least who would have the most trouble actually adapting to the world war ii scenario knowing virtually nothing about it and having trouble interacting with crew members who are actually you know modern people as opposed to World War II France and Nazi Nazis. So, you know, that <laughs> it's a good it's a good choice is what I'm saying. She's the kind of person who would have the hardest time doing it and therefore it is logical to give her that task. Especially given the thing with with uh, Janeway and Tuvok, but I digress. So I love that there's a scene between Tom Paris's character and Chakotay's character. It's really weird. If you pay attention to all of Voyager, with a couple of exceptions, and I've pointed them out as we go, for the most part, Chakotay is... Oh, that's a good word without being too insulting. Wooden. He's very wooden. Uh, and it's mostly because they don't give Robert Beltran much to do. When they actually give him something to do, it's great. It's kind of the same problem Harry Kim has, actually, with Gary Wong. But, um... I mention this because virtually every time, other than the few exceptions, that Chakotay comes across, or I should say Robert Beltran comes across as, you know, alive and having good chemistry with someone, it's usually when he's playing someone other than Chakotay. And this is a good example that he's playing Captain whatever his name is, um, alongside Lieutenant whatever his name is, a.k.a. Tom Paris. And the two actually have some really great chemistry, and the scene between them is short, brief, to the point, establishes what's going on, and exists as a good way to really showcase some good acting between the two characters. I just felt like mentioning that. And then I have another note which says, and I quote, God, I love the Harry scenes. <laughs> so then we get to the end of episode one. Like I said, episode one is all about establishment, and it really goes out of its way to really establish the pieces. And it's funny because it feels like a game of dominoes, and not an actual game, but like a pattern, you know? Because what they're effectively doing... <sighs> is laying up all these dominoes. Here's all the characters. Here's Nazi Germany. Here's the French Resistance. Here's the American Invaders. Here's the Herosian. Here's Harry Kim. Here's uh, the Doctor. Here's Seven. Getting eh, And it's this wonderfully intricate pattern, which is just... It's actually a house of cards. is probably a better uh, metaphor here. It's this wonderfully intricate pattern that if anything goes wrong, it'll fall apart. And I mean, like, literally, if you flicked the, the edge, the whole house of cards would fall apart. And then rather than flicking the edge, someone just brings up a mallet and smashes it through it. And that's what leads us to part two. And I think that's one of the reasons I like this, again, uh, as one cohesive story. Because the build-up all is immediately paid off by what is effectively utter chaos. Again, mallet. <clears throat> the... I, I, as I said, I don't have much to say about Part 2 specifically, other than that it overall accomplishes what it's out to do really, really well. The scenes feel chaotic. They feel like you're in the middle of a war. And they pull out that feeling of being in the middle of a war, despite the fact that the war is holographic, and then there's the battle, which is also holographic, and then there's the battle, which is not holographic, and then there's the infiltrators, which are holographic, and the infiltrators, which are not holographic, and you get the point. And it all just spills out over each other, which makes this overall feeling of conflict. It really has great atmosphere. Um, I, I, and I, as I note here, all hell breaks loose. There is exactly one scene I don't care for. Kinda. This is a weird situation, okay? There's a scene where Tom and Bolana's characters catch up with each other. 
keep in mind that the entire episode has been establishing all this stuff so that we can then have all hell break loose. And so this scene interrupts the flow of that significantly. It also wastes about two minutes of time, give or take, talking about two characters of characters, a.k.a. people we don't care about and we'll never see again, right? Why bother? Well, here's the weird thing. That's the obvious uh, perspective on it, and indeed makes a lot of sense because it does feel like a wasted scene. But, but, one of the things I like about that scene is it shows something about the characters, Tom and Bellana, not the, the the lieutenant and the, I can't even think of her name, the, the characters they're playing. <laughs> I feel like Inception here. The point being, they do this later in the episode Workforce, I believe. The idea here is that, again, that's Tom Paris if he lived in that era, and that's Bellana if she lived in that era, and they're still together. And they still care about each other. He's still protective. She's still caring. The two of them still have amazing chemistry together. And I like that because it just is another layer of showing that the real people, with no need to pretend, still actually care about each other just as much. It would have been um, interesting, if horrible, if, for example, Tom had ended up with someone else, or Bellana had ended up with someone else, in a circumstance in which the two were allowed to act on feelings they otherwise have no reason to... To, you know, to get rid of, right? Like I talked about with regard to Seven and uh, Tuvok and Janeway. But the two of them gravitate naturally toward each other. And again, Workforce uh, explores the same idea in basically the same exact way as well. So I feel like the scene, while it does interrupt the flow and honestly probably should have been moved forward before the end of uh, Episode 1, nevertheless does actually do something with regards to the characters Tom and Milana and really shows the nature of their relationship. Not their love interest, not their sex friendship or whatever, an actual honest-to-God relationship. It shows that there's a core there that helps keep them together. It's one of the reasons why I've always felt those two have one of the only successful relationships in all of Star Trek. Moving on. So I just have a note here. Again, I, I have and this note literally says I don't have much to discuss. I love the atmosphere. I love the feeling of the chaos. I love the loss of command. I love the fighting. I feel bad for Ethan Phillips because he had to wear his he had to wear a two-step makeup. He had to wear his uh, Talaxian makeup and then Klingon makeup on top of that. According to him, he was dying underneath all of that, and I could imagine that all that rubber that gets hot, especially with all those lights on you. Ugh. So I feel very bad for him. Um, and there's some great uh, character moments, and there's some great comedy moments, blah, blah, blah. And I guess that's kind of all I have to talk about except for two things, okay? Like I said, I don't have much to say about part two, which is why I squished these together. I find it irony, and, and, and irony, that the beta is actually defeated by Janeway through cunning. Now, if you don't get the point here, the entire thematic symbolism of the culture and whatnot of this entire episode could be summarized as, you know, as I already did. And the beta falls into this naturally. He is someone who tries to accomplish something better because he has been convinced that it is better, even if he doesn't fully agree with it. Until finally, the Nazi gives the great, hor you know, the Capitan gives that horrendous speech about how we are bastards and we should just kill everyone. That's a summary. It's actually a really well-written speech, if horrible and really well performed. Um, and then he decides, screw it, I'm going to go off and be a bastard. I am a hunter, and therefore I'm going to hunt, and that's all I care about. Again, he underestimates his prey, he doesn't adapt to the situation, and he is effectively stagnant. He reverts to stagnation, and that is actually what gets him killed. He, again, literally, because he underestimates Janeway and lacks the cunning to see through her, her interactions and her abilities and the situation around him. He lacks the ability to adapt. 
and thus the erosion dies, the specific erosion, the beta. The question is left there in the audience's mind, and again, remember, this was supposed to be the end of the erosion, whether or not the erosion will adapt. Because they do change something right at the end. The Hirogen do acknowledge and make a treaty with Janeway, which again is something very unusual. You don't acknowledge prey, but we'll go ahead and acknowledge you this once, and we'll take this gift from you. And who knows what'll happen with that. Now, again, I know we had the follow-up episode, but let's pretend it doesn't exist for just one second. And let's talk about one thing very simply. I know this is a really uh, polarizing thing to talk about, and I'm going to only discuss it in brief, okay? Um, and I imagine some of my fans out there right now are watching this like, well, what's polarizing about this episode? Amongst, I've seen this dis argued and discussed at conventions and amongst, you know, just friends and myself and online and forums and whatnot. Janeway gives away holographic technology to the Herosian freely, without technically having anything in trade, because they'd already arranged the truce. They don't even want it at the end, if you pay attention. She still insists they take it, after all, honoring her part of the bargain and whatnot, and Janeway's own desire to see the Herosian not fall into cultural decay, just like the Beta did, like she literally saw him do, but I digress. So, she is a, this is, this is the same captain who went out of her way to say that she would not give away even basic, mundane technology to anybody, because it would compromise her principles. This is the same, and, and, and it is worth noting that there, that is, there is a reasonable argument behind that. The idea that you cannot understand what could happen if you give away that kind of technology to people who have not earned it, who have not worked up to it and therefore understand how to use it. That's generally how that discussion goes. But she gives away holographic technology to the Herosian. Now, first of all, the Herosian are pretty damn advanced. So I don't think it's kind of, it, I don't think it's giving phasers to cavemen. Not quite. So that's my perspective on that. The second perspective is, this is a deal she made to save the lives of her crew. Now, I know, morals, ethics, etc. But, I feel like pointing out, for anybody who's going to argue the Prime Directive, one of the points of the Prime Directive has always been the Captain, and this is even in the original series, the Captain can bypass the, original, the Prime Directive if it will save the lives of his crew. However, I will also admit that also in the original series, there's a line in uh, the Omega Glory, I believe, about how the captain will sacrifice himself and the lives of his entire crew to preserve the Prime Directive. So I admit it is not a linear thing. But it has always been my perspective that when it really comes down to the wire and it is survival, not even living, just survival, you need to go ahead and make that call. And so she violates the Prime Directive, gives them this, etc., However, it is my perspective this is not a violation of the Prime Directive. For the same reason, it's not a violation of the Prime Directive when the Federation trades with any other race ever. It's trade amongst another advanced race. That's it. That's not a violation of the Prime Directive, in my opinion. I know some people disagree with that, and I'm willing to listen to such discussions. But the final point I want to mention here is I feel like this... One of the reasons I hear that people argue this is a Prime Directive thing is this is Janeway attempting to play God because she wants to influence the Herosian culture, not just this guy, not this these Herosian. She wants to give them this gift so that they can adapt and grow. However, it is also worth noting that for the same exact reason trades have been made in the past with regards to technology or understanding or blueprints or materials, and usually it is done with good intentions, Right? Now, you might argue, well, good intentions may lead to bad things, and you are absolutely right. However, it has always been my perspective that if you allow yourself to not do something that you feel could lead to good because it might lead to bad, 
then you are simply being paralyzed by your own fear and not actually taking action like, oh, I don't know, a captain should. That is just my perspective on the matter. And I freely acknowledge that it is not the correct one. It is simply mine. Which is correct for me, of course, but you know. <laughs> That's all I got. Good episode. Fun stuff. Loved it. Looking forward to the next one. See you around, guys. Have you considered our future? What will become of us when we have hunted this territory to exhaustion? We will travel to another part of space. Search for new prey, as we have always done. A way of life that hasn't changed for a thousand years. Why should it? Species that don't change... die. We've lost our way. We've allowed our predatory instincts to dominate us. We disperse ourselves throughout the quadrant, sending ships in all directions. We've become a solitary race, isolated. We've spread ourselves too thin. We're no longer a culture. We have no identity. In another thousand years, no one will remember the name Herogen. Our people must come back together, combine forces, rebuild our civilization. What of the hunt? The hunt will always continue, but in a new way. I intend to transform this ship into a vast simulation, populated with a varied and endless supply of prey. In time, this technology can be duplicated. For other Herogen, these holodecks will allow us to hold on to our past while we face the future.